0: Morning, church. Well, in the past two weeks, we have been uh, looking at the life of Moses. Uh, We've learned that he was born of Jewish uh, parents who were slaves in Egypt. And through some unusual circumstances, he was adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh and raised in the royal court. One day, he kills a man and runs to the country of Midian to escape capture he marries into a, a family, and he takes on the life of a shepherd. But one day he hears a burning bush, and he hears a voice from the Lord calling him to return to Egypt uh, to free his fellow slaves. Now he doesn't want to go, but finally says yes, through, and through a series of miracles, finally convinces Pharaoh uh, to let his people go. And it looks like there is no way, and, and suddenly God makes a way. And after 430 years in Egypt, they are heading back to the promised land. But Pharaoh changes his mind, and Moses and Israel find themselves caught between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. They think they're going to die, but once again, God makes a way. Now at this point, the road to Canaan is pretty obvious. You turn north until you hit the Mediterranean Sea and, and you head northeast. I mean, caravans used this route to travel between Africa and Asia. It was a direct and, and well traveled, and and there would have been plenty of food and water. It was about 175 miles or so, so an adult walking could make the trip in about 10 days. Of course, Israel had thousands of people and children and flocks and herds. So we can say safely that it would take about a month to get to the promised land. And it would have been scenic. I mean, have you ever been to the Mediterranean? (laughs) It's gorgeous, isn't it? And they would have had a nice breeze coming off of the ocean. They could have had crab cakes for dinner, uh, beach volleyball in the evening. It would have been a great trip. So it's, it's scenic, and it's direct, and it's the most popular route. I mean, isn't that the way you want to go? But they don't. <laughs> they don't go that way. They head south to Mount Sinai. And there they spend a year getting the Ten Commandments, building the tabernacle, learning how to worship and receiving the laws and and the regulations that were going to govern this new nation. Remember, they had been in Egypt for some 400 years. (laughs) There was a lot of stuff they needed to unlearn and and a lot of stuff they needed to learn and be schooled in who God is and and, and how they will relate to Him. Well, finally, they are ready to set out for, for Kadesh, which sits on the southern edge of the promised land. And the Lord is going before them, a, a pillar of fire at night and a, and, and a cloud at day. It should have taken just a, a few weeks to get there. But instead, they wander in the wilderness for some 39 years. Now, wandering is defined as the space between where I started and where I want to go it's kind of the space between getting your education and starting your first job it's kind of that space between dating and and marriage it's that space between losing your job and finding a new one it's that space between getting sick and getting well again now i hate wondering I don't like the journey (laughs) I want to take the most direct and the fastest route when when Melinda and I are traveling to the beach each June it's a 13 hour journey and I have to confess that sometimes I I get a little intense especially when I'm trying to pass a a slow driver and, and she will inevitably say to me relax Mark. Well, why are you in such a hurry? Because I want to get there. And she'll say, why? What are you going to do when you get there? And I say, well, I'm going to relax, of course. I want to get there quickly so I can relax. Now, some people like to travel. Not me. I want to get there. But I think God disagrees with me. I think God cares more about our journeys and less about the destination. And I'm pretty sure that in the spiritual life, wandering is part of the process. How about you? Do you like the destination or do you prefer the journey? Are you one of those people like myself that's always in a hurry? Do you know whether or not you are? Well, if you're not sure, let me ask you a couple questions. At the end of it, we'll know whether what kind of person you are. You can raise your hand if you want, but you don't have to. Number one, have you ever cut through a, a gas station to avoid a red light? Several hands going up. Do you regularly finish other people's sentences? No hand. Well, there's one hand going up. Do you frequently check your watch? Especially during sermons. Okay. Uh, Do you become annoyed when somebody writes out a check at the grocery checkout line? When When you're late, do you become irrationally upset? Anybody? I sure do. And then lastly... Do you feel compelled to leave church early during the last song to avoid the rush? Actually, you don't have to raise your hand on that one because we see you walking by every Sunday morning. So now you know. Now you know whether you're a person who's interested in the journey or more in getting there. You see, God seems to be more interested in what we're becoming than where we're going. In fact, God does His work in us while we travel. And as you read through the story, it seems that their wanderings are part of the process. I mean, have you ever noticed how many people in the Bible have to spend time wandering in the wilderness? And how often it's God who leads them there. Think about it. Abraham waited 25 years before the promise of a son came true. Joseph waits 22 years before his dream comes true. We learned about him a couple weeks ago. Israel spends 40 years in the wilderness between their captivity in Egypt and their arrival in the promised land. David flees to the wilderness to get away from Saul who is trying to kill him. He waits 20 years between the time he is anointed by Samuel and he actually becomes king. Elijah, he flees to the wilderness where where Ahab and Jezebel put a price on his head. And, And even Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness between his baptism and the beginning of his ministry. And what we discover from these Bible stories is that the wilderness is a place of testing. It's a place of temptation. And it's also a place of spiritual growth. You see, all the accustomed supports and, and distractions of civilization no longer there. In the wilderness, life is, is simple, but it's also sheer survival. It's also a place of, of learning. It's a place of transformation. With Moses and, and, and the people of Israel, they learned how to depend upon God for their daily provisions. I mean, they really have no choice. There's no restaurants out there. There's no dependable source of drinking water. And so their very survival depends upon God providing. David's time in the wilderness dramatized God's care for him in the most desperate time of his life. Elijah learns in the wilderness how to listen to that still small voice of God. And, And Jesus learns what temptation feels like. And how to put his complete trust in God see the truth is that most of us will find ourselves wandering in the wilderness from time to time and on that journey we'll find ourselves tested and and tried and, temp- and, and, and tempted and tempted it doesn't matter how much we surround ourselves with civilization because it's really I'm not talking about a, a geographical wilderness I'm, I'm talking about a, a circumstantial wilderness So how does Israel spend their time in the wilderness? Let's find out. Uh, They leave Mount Sinai and they turn north towards Kadesh Barnea. And in less than three days, this is what happens. We find it in in Numbers chapter 11, beginning with verse 4, if you have your Bibles. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. Oh, we remember the fish that we ate in Egypt at no cost. All the cucumbers, all the melons and leeks and onions and garlic. But out here we've lost our appetite. We, we never see anything but this manna. Verse 10, Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance of their tents, and the Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, Why? Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, Give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. If I have found favor in your eyes, then do not let me face my own ruin. Wow. You ever traveled with kids? Well, what's the phrase that you hear most often? Are we there yet? (laughs) I mean, they're they're hardly out of the driveway when they start complaining. When are we going to get there? And and look how quickly they romanticized the past. What do they say? Remember the old days? Oh, we had lots of wonderful food to eat and, and it was all free. No. No, they didn't. They were slaves in the past. The good old days were what? They were horrible. God had brought them out of slavery, had helped them cross the Red Sea. He gave them water to drink from a rock, manna from heaven to eat. Their clothes don't wear out. And yet, what are they doing? They're whining. Everything was better in the past than what they have now. God gave them everything they needed, but they wanted more. They can't believe Him for the future. And it affects the entire nation. Everyone. And did you notice where it starts? It starts with a rabble. (laughs) It's a small group of unhappy people. But by verse 10 it says, Every family was wailing. You ever notice that, how contagious complaining is? Starts with a small group of people, but it becomes toxic. A couple people complaining can infect the home, your place of employment, school, neighborhood. And it can destroy a marriage. The Gottman Institute research showed that criticism of your spouse is one of the biggest uh, predictors of divorce and by criticism they they don't mean feedback, they don't mean advice but unnecessary verbal attacks designed to make your spouse feel small or hurt in fact they can actually predict with uncanny accuracy that if a couple exchanges verbal attacks every 10 out of 100 comments that it will end in divorce. It's toxic. And look what it does to Moses. I mean, it throws him into a depression. It impacts his relationship with God. He says, God, why? Why did you give me this miserable and childish people? God, I, I can't handle this. And then what does he say? God, kill me. <laughs> I mean, he wants out of this leadership role so badly, he's willing to die to get out. Sometimes that happens in church. We're in a leadership role. We have to die before we can get out of it. Ever happened to you? You're the leader of a group or a committee and the criticism gets so bad, you just wanna, you want to quit? It's awful, isn't it? Well, God does two things. First of all, he raises up 70 leaders to take the burden off of Moses so that he will not have to carry it alone. I think that's pretty smart. No way one person could lead all those thousands of people. And each of those leaders, it says, received a portion of the Holy Spirit from Moses. So it was not going to be on their own power. God was going to give them the power they needed to lead. And then secondly, God decides to to give the people of Israel some perspective. Verse 18 says this, Now the Lord will give you meat, and you will eat it, and you'll not eat it for just one day, or two days, or five, or ten, or twenty days, but for a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils, and you loathe it. Isn't that great? Doesn't God have a sense of humor? You want meat? Okay, fine. I'm going to give it to you until it's coming out of your nose. <laughs> until you're sick of it. But what's God trying to do here? He's trying to give him perspective. You see, perspective is that capacity to view things in their relative importance. See, Israel has lost their Perspective. And I find it's a great cure for complaining. You see, when, when you start thinking that, that everyone else has it better than what you have, here's what I do. I, I think to myself, well, it could be worse. It could be worse. Instead of saying, you know what, my, my house is, is so small, if only I had, a, I had a house as big as my neighbor, I'd be happy. Instead, just say, could be worse. Uh, When you get out of the shower and you look at yourself in the mirror, instead of saying, I hate how I look. (laughs) If only I looked like so-and-so. Instead, try saying, it could be worse. When you wake up in the morning and you roll over and, and you look at the person there lying beside you, Instead of saying, boy, I, I wish they looked like so-and-so, just say to yourself, could be worse. <laughs> you see, there's a, there's a dark side to complaining. When we start to complain, when we start to compare ourselves with others, our, our egos get involved. And then our pride and envy and jealousy and, and anger... And it begins to cause us to resent God's goodness in, in others' lives. We, we start ignoring God's blessing in our own life. And I find that it starts in childhood and goes right into adulthood. When I start to compare myself with other people and, and I see that I'm doing better, when I see that I'm outperforming them, guess what? I, I begin to feel prideful. And if I find that I'm not doing as well as they are, I begin to feel inferior. You see, the truth is we do it to ourselves, and it makes us miserable. I was at a ball game, and one of the boys struck out. And the father began to yell at the boy, come on, swing away. Keep your eye on the ball. What's wrong with you? And then he began to yell at the umpire. Come on, Dad. Keep it in perspective. It's a beautiful sun Saturday afternoon. Your boy is healthy. You're having a great game. You live in a beautiful community. Relax. Keep it in perspective. Does that make sense? I'm competitive as the next guy I like to win I want to succeed but what I've discovered is that there's always somebody who has a nicer car always somebody with a bigger house or a bigger salary there's always somebody out there with smarter kids or a better looking spouse I have to keep it in perspective you see I I find that the antidote to my complaining, is, it's worship. It's worship and gratitude. And so instead of complaining, what if we counted our blessings? How might that change our lives? You see, gratitude is the very heart of the worship because in worship we, we gather to thank God for the blessings of the past week and, and, and we come and we ask Him to guide us and, and to strengthen us for the coming week. We remember our blessings. In, in chapter 13, the Lord tells Moses to, to send out 12 spies to check out the land they're about to enter. 40 days later, they come back and they give this report. The land is it's wonderful. It's flowing with milk and honey, but, but there's just one thing. The people there are powerful and their cities are well fortified. And, and, and they look like giants. We felt like grasshoppers. They're, they're so big. We, we, we can't do this. We've got to turn around. We've got to go back to Egypt. But two of the, two of the spies, they, they bring a minority report. Their names are Joshua and Caleb. And they say, yeah, everything they're saying is true. But we can do this, not in our own power, not in our own strength, but because the Lord is with us. You see, sometimes I come to worship and I... And I feel overwhelmed by life. And I think, God, I can't do this anymore. God, I've got all these giants in my life, and they're too big for me. But in worship, I catch this fresh vision of God. And I'm reminded once again of all that He has done for me in the past. And I'm reminded that on Friday, Jesus died on the cross for me. And that on Sunday, He rose from the dead. And because of that, I can have a brand new life when I place my faith in Him. And there's no giant I cannot face because the Lord is with me. And when I do that, I am filled with gratitude. My faith begins to grow. I stop my grumbling and my complaining. I turn back to Him And once again, I decide that I will trust and obey. Imagine how different life can be for us, for our families, for this community, if we can simply learn gratitude. Let's pray. God, we give you praise and thanks. For you are a great God, and you are greatly to be praised. Oh, God, we confess today our complaining and our whining, our comparison, always thinking the past was better. But, God, you have something great in mind for us for the future. You have provided everything that we've needed in the past, and, God, we know you're going to do the same in the future. So help us today to turn our eyes upon you, to turn our eyes upon the cross, and to see that you have accomplished it all for us. Help us, O God, to trust and obey. Amen.